0: Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. Have you ever met a friend's child and then seen them two months later and noticed that they are a completely different human? Well, that's basically because they are. The speed with which children's minds and bodies change is truly astonishing. This is part of the reason that I have so much respect for pediatricians. While I only know things like normal vital signs and medication doses for adults, pediatricians need to know those things for infants, toddlers, school-aged children, etc. It's a lot. When you think about it this way, you can imagine just how important it is to develop disaster plans that specifically incorporate the diverse needs of children because not only are they not little adults, but they vary widely between age groups. Today we have the opportunity to learn more about the importance of pediatric emergency and disaster planning from Dr. Joel Simpson, who is, among many other things, a pediatric emergency medicine specialist, division chief of emergency medicine, and the medical director for emergency preparedness at Children's National Hospital, as well as the program director for emergency medical services for children working to improve community disaster and emergency readiness. And the founder of Pediatric Medical Reserve Corps of Washington, D.C. Let's learn more. How did you become interested in pediatric disaster medicine and response? What was the path that brought you to where you are now?
1: That's a great question. I did not expect to be in this field, and I think it's sort of a little bit of opportunity and some preparedness. My first year as a pediatrician, when I just finished residency, I was working in a community emergency department. I was the pediatrician with the ED providers, and it was during the H1N1 pandemic. As we know, that was a particular illness that affected children fairly significantly with respiratory surge. And I was working in Baltimore with very diverse communities, and sort of all of the elements of trying to have an emergency department ready for the volumes was definitely lessons learned in real time having not really had any formal training in the concept of triage and surge and all of the elements of disaster medicine now interestingly enough when i was a first-year medical student in washington dc at george washington university it was 2001 and walking to my anatomy class that september we experienced 9-11 and i recall absorbing during my medical training sort of the aftermath of 9-11, right? So we talked about mental health differently. We talked about the stress on our societies, the disparities. And all of those lived experiences in my medical training, I think, culminated in gravitating towards this field of disaster medicine, which is I thrive in sort of trying to make a sense out of chaos. And I think that's sort of the crux of what disaster medicine can be about. And using those experiences in my past, that has sort of helped me build a career in pediatric disaster medicine.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about what your role is now and what you're currently working on? I am the chief of emergency medicine at Children's National Hospital.
1: I also have served since 2013 as the medical director for emergency preparedness at this hospital, which is really interesting because we're the only children's hospital in Washington, D.C., And because we're in Washington, D.C., I've also had the opportunity to represent entities such as the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Emergency Physicians on projects around disaster preparedness. So this role has evolved to now having a bit of experience with leading not just local projects around children and disasters, but also projects partnering with adult infrastructures. So whether it's general emergency departments or healthcare coalitions, where we tend to have at Children's National that voice for kids and how we're better prepared.
0: So I know that pediatricians love it when you say that kids are just like little adults. Just kidding. Everyone I've heard has hated that. Can you tell me why pediatric populations need special attention during disaster situations?
1: Yes, the best way for me to answer that is really to reflect on this past weekend. I was invited down to Florida to visit my brother. He has three small kids and he needed to run some errands and asked if I could watch them for a period of time. And of course, if I were to hang out with three uh, young adults, I don't think that would be too anxiety provoking. However, when you think about the two-year-old, the five-year-old and the eight-year-old all having different interests, different ways of communicating with me. Different ways of ambulating and freeing themselves from danger, different ways of seeing the world because of their stages of development. Inherently, that explains why they're not just little adults, right? So you think about that amplified with thousands of kids in a region, whether they're affected by a hurricane or whether they're affected by a mass casualty event. That crux of that explanation of how you approach children in their different developmental stages but also their different perceptions of what the world means to them, stranger anxiety, how they approach or be afraid of things that might be a threat to them. You know, my eight-year-old niece is afraid of thunder. My two-year-old niece could care less. She will topple off a couch at any point and not really think about it. So that's why they're not just little adults. We need to take into consideration all of their needs, given the different developmental stages that they're in. Their different physical abilities, their different psychological abilities, those are all important when we consider them in our disaster plans.
0: And how do your plans incorporate all these different stages of development?
1: In all stages of disaster planning, we think about kids from the perspectives of, number one, when you're just doing your hazard vulnerability analysis, if you're trying to plan for a given threat. So for instance, at our children's hospital, we consider different approaches to when we're working with our NICU or our nursery, versus when we're working with our adolescent unit. So you think about what are the supports I would need? Are these children in a space where they can reliably extricate themselves from a threat? What are the supports I need in order to comfort and soothe them if there is a threat? How much can I expect for them to follow commands? How much can I expect for them to in terms of where they are in life, in thinking about the recovery from an event, and whether I need to have mental health supports, or maybe I need child life assistance, or maybe I need uh, grandparents in my plan. So there's a lot of different elements in the preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery phases of how we think about uh, children.
0: So in a disaster situation, when there's a lot of casualties, pediatric Patients may actually end up in adult emergency departments and vice versa. How should emergency departments overall plan for this possibility?
1: I would say, first of all, I wouldn't even call it a possibility. It's going to happen. One of the things we've seen, especially in the era of ride shares and, you know, how portable children are because we can easily carry them is often uh, we see a lot of children showing up in our departments, pediatric or not, just being carried by an adult that wants to rescue them from an event or in an Uber or a Lyft. So I think we need to think about the fact that when someone is in a panic, they're not thinking that, oh, this is a child and they might be served any differently at a pediatric emergency department than a general emergency department. So every emergency department, every hospital system, quite frankly, should be thinking about children in their planning. And by that, it means, do I have equipment to save a child, such as intubation materials, etc.? Do I have algorithms in place for how I care for a child in terms of the biggest threat to children, for instance, as we've seen with the pandemic, is often respiratory illness. So do I have algorithms in place of the different types of rescue medications that are first line for rescuing a kid? Similar for antidotes. We know that children don't swallow pills, for instance. Do I have liquid formulations on hand for treating children? If I don't have those on hand, do I have MOUs or partnerships with a local pediatric entity, whether it be pediatric networks or pediatric hospital that can be a just-in-time call in order to either give me those algorithms or have a transfer mechanism in place where those kids can be expeditiously transferred to a definitive care. So those are all of the things that, some of the things I should say, that emergency departments and hospital systems should be considering. There's a lot of work on the national level from pediatric disaster and emergency medicine specialists. One of the resources I think every emergency department and healthcare system should be aware of is a federally funded program called the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Program. I've been a part of that program since I've been a pediatric emergency medicine physician. And what I love about it is that the federal government over 30 years ago decided it was important for them to allocate funds to every single state to think about emergency care for children in all spectrums of the health system. Very much, there was an emphasis on the pre-hospital system, so EMS, but certainly also emergency departments, hospitals, and even long-term care. So the EMSC program is really, really the focus of a partnership with the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatricians, as well as the Emergency Nurses Association, to survey hospitals on their readiness for kids and generate a score so that we know how we can measure ourselves and how we can do better. So I would urge folks to Google emergency medical services for children's program, and you will find a lot of resources on how you can better ready your emergency department in caring for kids
0: every day and in
1: disasters.
0: Do you think that most emergency departments and most physicians know about this? Because I actually had no idea about this. This is the first time I've ever heard of this, which seems like I've missed something. Well, I think the burden of communication
1: we see in healthcare all the time is really a challenge, right? So trying to get this information out, I assure you it's probably been sent to your academic affiliation if you're a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians or um, the American Academy of uh, Pediatricians and and certainly the state representatives that try to dispense this information across systems. They're trying to share it to individuals that are busy like you and I. And the day-to-day experience of most folks in emergency departments is really not to have the issues of children or a surge of children in their departments. So really the onus is on us as physicians um, and providers to really seek that information out. I think we've learned a lot of lessons from the quote-unquote triple-demic that was termed last year where kids flooded our emergency departments, quite frankly, because there wasn't capacity in our regions to care for children. And so many folks had to think about how do I take care of this kid in front of me or kids in front of me when I didn't plan for this? I think that hopefully now that will help the Emergency Medical Services for Children's program and resources be greater sought out for folks of us that haven't heard about it in the past.
0: Calling back to something you had mentioned earlier, you had said that children are at high risk for respiratory illness, which I've definitely seen. Um, But what are some other common illnesses or injuries that kids are very susceptible to in disaster situations?
1: Well, that's a challenging question just because, first of all, name the disaster and I could name the unique threat that it poses to children, right? So one of the ways that I describe this best is let's think about the pandemic, because that's probably first and foremost in many of our minds. When you think of 2020 and you think of the children that were born 10 years before that and 10 years after that, that sort of encompasses the spectrum of childhood from, let's say, zero to 20, just to say rough numbers. And so the 10-year-olds experience in that pandemic, now going through the issues we have now in the world, whether it's increased sort of mental health crises, presentations to emergency departments, the recovery of the school system and being able to provide that environment to really help our children develop into productive young adults, this is the new environment that that child is now living in. So when we think about how we prepare for kids, it's not just about how we make sure we have the right way to deliver medications from the Strategic National Stockpile or the right way to treat their fractures or gunshot wounds or their respiratory treatments, but it really is also, I think, very important for us as disaster physicians to be thinking about What is the psychosocial construct for how that child is in their stage of development and the impact this can have everlasting on their life? I say that because when I graduated as a pediatrician and experienced the H1N1 pandemic, if I were a child and were having that frame the rest of my life, just the same way that that experience shaped the rest of my career, that potential disaster could have a really pivotal role in a child's life. And so I think the pandemic will have a pivotal role in shaping children's resilience for the rest of their lives, as is the issues of school shootings or the issues of our mental health crisis or the issues of any other future respiratory surge. You add in the confluence of what's in mass media, what our uh, families are experiencing and adults are experiencing, what the healthcare system has had to deal with in terms of being really overwhelmed and in crisis. Children living through that right now, their entire world is changing and we need to be evolving with them in order to better support them to be young, productive adults.
0: So you had kind of touched on this just now, but what are some of the psychological impacts that disasters can have on children in the wake of a disaster?
1: I think there's a lot of parallels between the psychological impact of what a child experiences and potentially what an adult experiences. I think the context is what it means for them in shaping the rest of their lives. The best way to sort of answer this is the context of my experience with my nieces. What my two-year-old niece experiences in the pandemic, where now she does not want to go out in public without a mask right? So her reality and her normal is that everybody wears a face mask, as opposed to my eight-year-old who is really now wedded, honestly, to her iPad. And that's where she gets her comforts because she is now living in a world where touchscreen and virtual life is normal. So it's hard to answer what the specific psychological impact is for children, because when we use That uh, description of children, it's very, very broad. There's so many nuances, the developmental levels of children to really answer that question effectively. We've seen, for instance, that the crisis right now in the aftermath of the pandemic really unveiled what's been happening with our um, youth and adolescents. We've seen a lot more anxiety presentations, depressive presentations to our emergency departments and within our communities. And I think that's a large part of where the adolescents have been in processing what's happening to their world, that usually in that stage of life, we're looking for the securities of things like a parent, a routine in a school system, uh, rules and regulations that don't get sort of changed overnight, which is what happened during the pandemic. And so I think the flurry of reactions that children have had to the pandemic is maybe a nice example of what we should have done better to mitigate some of the now sort of aftermath that we're dealing with.
0: How do you think we could have improved that situation? I think
1: that's the crux of why you might have invited me to this podcast. We should have pediatricians and those that work with children at the table when we're doing our broader disaster plans. We need to have the resources like emergency medical services for children at the fingertips of all folks that work in emergency departments and in emergency care systems. The consideration of what would a hospital that does not typically care for kids, what would their response be when the children's hospital down the street is overwhelmed or the infrastructure is broken at that children's hospital and they're no longer able to care for the mass amounts of children that they serve? What is in the disaster plans for those healthcare systems that don't typically care for kids? Because, you know, I'll also admit that in the children's hospitals, we had to learn very quickly what we needed to do to step up in caring for adults as we did in the earliest stages of the pandemic. I think both systems have an obligation now in the aftermath of the pandemic to learn from that experience and to do better in being ready for really all of our populations.
0: What were the main challenges that the COVID pandemic highlighted as far as pediatric disaster and emergency medicine?
1: I think what's necessary is that pediatricians are able to help in that recovery phase in terms of getting our pediatric population back to a healthy mode of life, right? So even right now in the aftermath of the pandemic, pediatricians are stepping up to try to have kids catch up with their vaccination schedules to help families with the counseling and coping techniques on how we talk to kids about what's going on in the world right now in the context of the sort of instability that the pandemic created. The pediatric field has been challenged in the aftermath of the pandemic and especially in the aftermath of the respiratory viral surge, where we learned across our systems that ICU beds and inpatient beds for children across our country continue to decline year after year after year, but at a greater rate than the pediatric population that exists. So we're 25% of the population are children, yet still the amount of beds to provide care for them has continued to decline across health systems. So we really need all of our physicians and nurses and other healthcare advocates to think about what that means for us and how can we support our pediatricians by providing more advocacy for um, systems where children can be
0: seen what would you say are some of the most important areas of focus for pediatric disaster medicine and response as far as research and education
1: i think there's a couple of different ways to think about pediatric disaster medicine and a focus Number one is that partnerships are important. So the infrastructure needs to be in place for us to build networks. And and what exactly that means. So are MOUs enough between a children's hospital and a general hospital? How do we know when we have done enough exercises? We've done enough simulations. What is the actual workload that equates to a positive outcome? in terms of those collaborations that we have. So I think we need to do a little bit more research and best practice in that space in building our networks um, and making sure that in all the spaces we talk about disasters, that we have the pediatric voice at the table. Secondly, I do think we have to consider what does contingency care mean as it applies to children. The whole concept of crisis standards of care, when we get to something at the level of a global pandemic, uh, we have to be very realistic. We know that we were gonna anticipate the respiratory volumes. Every year, we have a surge in respiratory volumes across this country, across the world. Yet still, every year, we've had incremental steps in being better able to serve children. However, many resources simultaneously have been stripped, as I mentioned, for instance, the number of inpatient or critical care beds for children. So what do we need to be doing at an increased rate to compensate for the lack of resources that have been available for caring for children outside of sort of the general emergency department? And then I think we need to be thinking about innovations. Where are the supply chain devices and other adjuncts that are necessary for care for kids? Whether it means that there is a certain stockpile of cribs that are available to help with receiving children in a crisis. Those are some of the things that really are almost the like, quote unquote, straw that broke the camel's back when you're caring for children and you need to transfer them to a pediatric facility purely because you don't have the supports or access to the supports to provide a safe environment to care for them within your system. So that's just sort of my top three that I could think of in terms of focus for pediatric disaster priorities.
0: As a leader in the pediatric disaster medicine field, what are some of the most significant advancements that you've seen over your career?
1: Some of the most significant advancements I think have happened really at the federal level and at the national level for various uh, national organizations. So really, really proud of the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Program and the work that they've done to elevate this idea of pediatric readiness. A lot of work still needs to be done, but the fact that they got greater than 80% survey return on hospitals across the country, pediatric and non-pediatric, to answer questions around the readiness for children is really very impressive. That survey was launched in 2013, 10 years ago, and there is a repeat survey to see where we've grown in the past 10 years. Less than 50% of hospitals that answered back in 2013 said that they had considered children in their disaster plans. I hope that when we resurvey, we will be greater than 50% and closer to hundred percent of those respondents thinking about kids. So I think a lot of advocacy has been done in the past 10 years for at least putting kids in the spotlight to discuss in pediatric disaster plans. Secondly, the federal government, particularly through the healthcare coalition program, has really emphasized the idea that coalitions and networks be thinking about children and pediatric surge planning had been a priority and a focus in the past two or three years across regions throughout the nation. So I'm really proud that that has been developed and pushed from the federal government. And then thirdly, the recent allocation of funds from the federal government to build the pediatric pandemic network for which I'm a principal investigator. Really proud of that advocacy work that led to realizing in the aftermath of the pandemic that we needed to learn in real time from those lessons and mitigate Some of the issues that occurred during the pandemic from happening again should another pandemic occur. So the Pediatric Pandemic Network has been a funded entity that brings together 10 children's hospitals with the intent to work with their community partners, meaning other hospitals, pre-hospital systems, and our communities as it pertains to kids, so school systems, et cetera, to think actively about pandemic planning, disaster planning, and emergency planning for children, And that grant was just funded in 2021 and is for that for the next five years, should be around and hopefully will continue to grow and flourish to build upon what our everyday pediatric readiness work was established in the Emergency Medical Services for Children's program. And now thinking really actively with funds to support it on disaster readiness for children.
0: What are some of your goals for the future of pediatric disaster medicine? There's a couple of things. I have a great
1: big wish list. I think One is that we're really proud, like I mentioned, of the appropriated funds that we've had to build things like the Pediatric Pandemic Network in collaboration with a lot of the federally funded grants that have been built recently to respond to special pathogens. And we certainly have the regional disaster healthcare systems that have been funded by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. But all of those have terms to when the funding is likely to run out. We need more authorizing language to better embed the work needed for pediatric disaster planning into our national infrastructures. Authorizing language around things for the Pediatric Pandemic Network would be amazing. And that way we would feel a little bit more guaranteed and a little bit more longevity in terms of the funds needed to support the work that we're doing. I think secondly, you know, my pride and joy right now is really working with the Pediatric Pandemic Network as it is. To think about the disaster science priorities, as you mentioned on the introduction to this podcast, we need to do better with research in real time, match to the outcomes, improved outcomes for the efforts that we're putting forth. We have a lot of technologies available to us in this world, whether it be artificial intelligence or wearable devices and other resources. Disaster science needs to keep up with the times. And think about these adjuncts to support our response readiness, not just for kids, but really for families as a whole. We also need to do a little bit more work in building partnerships across our healthcare system and public health system. So it's one thing for us to be clinicians working in the hospital systems or in our physician networks. But it's another thing to really understand the public health infrastructure at hand and how we better connect those two as we do crisis communication to our populations, as we try to mitigate the gap in the disparities that we know were unveiled and highlighted during the pandemic. Those are my three things. I think we need to authorize and formalize the funds. I think we need to continue to work on our adjuncts, as we say, the innovations and devices. And I think we need to do more to strengthen our partnerships with public health and medicine.
0: You had touched on this a little bit, but can you discuss your interest in thinking about disaster disparities from a pediatric standpoint? How do you think that those two, both the pediatric disaster response and then health disparities intersect? The
1: concern for me in disaster readiness and health disparities, really sort of the best spotlight was shed on that during the pandemic. And the example I give is here in Washington, D.C., when we were in the early stages of the pandemic. There was a lot of discussion about whether the COVID-19 was affecting children, and certainly we knew it was a threat to adults. And what we were hearing also as a sub-narrative is that we were seeing the the disparities that were very evident in terms of the outcomes for adults. If you were poorer, if you were of a certain ethnic group or socioeconomic status, you were less likely to do well becoming infected with COVID-19. People at the time, back in the early stages of the pandemic, thought that that impact was not felt by kids. Those disparities that we're seeing across racial and ethnic groups, uh, zip codes, socioeconomic status was not being translated to children because they weren't as sick from COVID. Well, what was interesting is our institution, our children's hospital, was able to put up a drive-through testing site for COVID-19 in the early stages of the pandemic. And it lasted for about 15 weeks. And about week six, we started to see really intense uptick of positive patients, patients that were positive for COVID-19 coming through the drive-through. What we also saw was within a six week timeframe was when we started to see patients from very specific zip codes throughout the DMV area also coming in with COVID-19. And there was a very significant correlation in our black and Hispanic patients being positive for COVID-19 and from particular socioeconomic groups, as well as from particular zip codes that did show that there was a disproportionate impact of those populations. I give that anecdotal story just to say that that translates in many other uh, conditions or or frameworks that you could think of during disasters, whether it be the mental health crisis, uh, whether it be the issues of increased violence in our communities that we're seeing, there is a disproportionate impact on certain groups of our pediatric population that actually very closely translates to what we see in our adult population. So it has to be considered when we try to think of mitigating factors, protective factors, and recovery planning for our pediatric population uh, as we do our disaster management.
0: More on a broad level, not just from the hospital level, what do you think that communities as a whole can do to improve their readiness when they're thinking about disasters and how they affect children?
1: I'd like to answer that from the perspective of thinking about communities as us, not them. I do believe that healthcare systems, public health in general, we need to do a better job of community engaged work. By that, I mean communities should be at the table at the early stages of planning. It should be us thinking about what works best for our communities. We need to have our community partners' voices in understanding what is the response and the responsibilities of the healthcare system in serving their community? I think that we started to see some of that develop during the pandemic. There are certain communities I know of, one in Chicago, that decided to build out health equity zones across the city and partnered with anchor institutions in those communities to advise the healthcare systems and how we talk about Uh, vaccine hesitancy or how we even deliver vaccines to certain communities. I think one of the pivots that we really need to make in the conversations we have when we think about community readiness is changing the narrative of that conversation to being us together coming up with a plan for recovery and mitigation and response versus a them.
0: Can you discuss your involvement in the American Academy of Pediatrics Disaster Preparedness Advisory Council and how that work has contributed to improving disaster preparedness?
1: The American Academy of Pediatrics has been sort of the pioneer and leader in the forefront in terms of pediatric care across the U.S. And uh, what was actually originally framed as a Disaster Preparedness Advisory Council has now been called the Council on Children and Disasters, And it brings together a core group of AAP members that are interested in all of these layers of disaster. So we have emergency medicine pediatricians, general pediatricians, hospitalists, subspecialty pediatricians of all walks of life, thinking about the issues of disaster management from all of those different lenses. And we also have uh, emergency medicine physicians that are a part of our group that have an invested interest in doing better to care for kids. The AAP Council on Children and Disasters helps advise the sort of national level AAP on being at the table for meetings with the national meetings around healthcare coalitions or in meetings with the American College of Emergency Physicians, or or in meetings with the National Medical Association, which really thinks about sort of the diversity of populations we have out in our communities. So that work I'm really proud of. I've been a member of that council for about three years now, and certainly prior to that when it was formally called the Disaster Preparedness Advisory Council, and they work very closely with federal partners, private partners, academic institutions, and communities to think better about being leaders in pediatric disaster readiness.
0: From your perspective, what do you think that families with children should be doing to prepare themselves for potential disasters?
1: I don't think families with children are any different than families, period. I think our general population has learned a lot through the experience of COVID-19. And I think many people are probably sort of thinking what they were pre-pandemic to post-pandemic in terms of what they need to be doing to be ready from a financial perspective, housing perspective, access to resources that are available from their state or the federal government. So I don't really have a task list for families, except to say that I understand that families all have different levels of readiness because they all have different levels of crisis at hand based on their circumstances. So I think the onus is on our public health systems and our healthcare systems to help with the data and metrics that we can use to advocate for greater funding, and greater resource allocation to certain communities to help partner with our families and our communities to be better ready. But I think most families on a day-to-day basis, nobody willingly wants to make themselves vulnerable to a threat, right? But a lot of people are living day-to-day crises and just being able to afford their rent or put food on the table. So I don't have a charge for families. I have a charge to our systems to better support our families moving forward.
0: So that was all my specific questions. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight about pediatrics and disasters or disasters in general or pediatrics or anything else that you'd like to talk about?
1: I feel like I covered a lot of context here. I definitely wanted to talk about the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Program, the Pediatric Pandemic Network. I think a third network that I would love to highlight is just really proud of the efforts that the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response put forth in funding all three pediatric disaster centers of excellence. Those are regional grants that were given out in the West Coast, in the HHS Region 5, Middle America, and then Southeast States, which is a Gulf 7, three funded entities to think actively across state lines about pediatric disaster readiness. So that's sort of the other resource I think that has been on the table in the past 10 years to support children. All of those entities, whether you look up Emergency Medical Services for Children's Program, the Pediatric Pandemic Network, or Pediatric Disaster Centers of Excellence. They all have websites, many of us quite interlinked in terms of resources for anybody listening to this podcast that is really wanting to build more expertise on what is out there, what exists to help boost their pediatric disaster planning or also just to become a collaborator with the work that those three entities are doing.
0: I actually did have a follow-up question. You had mentioned about public health and how some of the onus is on them. I worked in public health and I don't remember a ton of focus on pediatrics. Like I know there was WIC that was part of the public health department that I was in, but there wasn't a big focus. What do you think that public health in general should be doing just to be more pediatric focused?
1: I had mentioned that the recent work of healthcare coalitions has put an emphasis on being ready for children in in many different environments. So I think there is a little bit more focus in, um, like, for instance, our local public health department did commission a team of individuals to work on pediatric surge planning. And that has happened in a lot of other states where healthcare coalitions from the national level said, you all need to develop a pediatric surge plan. Now, those surge plans do exist in various forms and fashions. And they do really push the envelope on who else needs to be at the table to discuss readiness for children in partnership with public health. So we've learned a lot that school systems have been left out of public health conversations, yet still school systems were called upon to be a partner in delivering vaccines in communicating with families and providing food when there were issues of food insecurity for certain families. So that's some of the ways that I think public health is starting to learn creatively about sort of existing partners, but maybe considered new partners in being at the conversation to think about how we serve children in a crisis.
0: That was all my questions. Anything else that you would like to talk about? No, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit more about Pediatric Disaster Readiness. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. Want more learning? Check out the content at Urgent Matters for e-newsletters, webinars, tools, conferences, and podcasts to enhance your practice, whatever your practice might be. Go to urgentmatters.smhs.gwu.edu. Have an idea for a topic to discuss or know someone that you think would be great to interview on the disaster project? Send us a message about it email the disaster project podcast at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts ideas and suggestions can't wait to read them